This is 69 The Podcast. I'm Dave Haynes. 69 has been covering the digital signage industry since the dawn of man, first online and now as a podcast. The goal on here is to make listeners aware of interesting companies, smart people, and new technology developments, all of them meaningful in making digital signage projects happen. I try to help listeners understand sometimes complicated subjects and why they should care. The podcasts are free and I try to get a new one out weekly, but things happen now and then. The 69 Podcast has been gratefully sponsored and supported since the start by Jeremy Gavin and the fine folks at ScreenFeed, the digital signage content store. ScreenFeed makes beautiful-looking, totally automated content for signage and digital out-of-home networks. Check them out at ScreenFeed.com. 69 has been around since 2006, and the publication and podcast are now owned by Spectrio, which provides customer engagement solutions for business. You can find them at Spectrio.com. One of the big trends in the software world is the whole idea of no-code development. The premise that both programmers and mere mortals can create applications without getting their typing fingers dirty and their brains fried doing traditional computer programming. The proposition is that no-code development platforms can cut out a lot of time and costs associated with pulling applications together and also deal with the reality that good programmers are in high demand and therefore scarce. The French software firm Intuaface is in the interesting position of having offered a no-code platform long before no-code was even a discussion point. So the folks there are a great resource for discussing the implications for the digital signage and interactive display market. I spoke with Jeff Besson, the CMO and main voice for Intuaface, about the distinctions between no-code and low-code development platforms and how they differ from the simple drag-and-drop, what-you-see-is-what-you-get interfaces that are common in digital signage content management systems. We also dig into the benefits, the limitations, and more than anything, why you should know and care about no code. Jeffrey, thank you for joining me. Can you give me the rundown first on uh, what Intuaface is all about? I uh, will do, Dave, and thank you for having me. So Intuaface is a no-code platform dedicated to the creation of interactive digital content that uh, includes digital signage, but really can be anything in venue. could be... Uh, a museum exhibition, could be a sales pitch for a mobile sales team, could be uh, anything you see at a trade show, something at a real estate office, uh, etc. So you create it, you deploy it, you can do analytics with it, that sort of thing. And the company's based in France, correct? We are headquartered in uh, a town called La Beige, which is right outside Toulouse. Okay. In France, yes. Although I'm not, I'm not. Uh, although it's funny, my name, Jeffrey Besson, both my first and last name look French, so people always assume it's French, but... Uh, not the case. I'm in Boston. Can you speak a lick of French? Uh, oui, je peux parler un peu. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. So um, I wanted to talk about no-code software because you guys have kind of sort of been no-code before people were even using that term. And no-code is one of these trends, just like headless CMS, it's, that seems to be bubbling up and maybe people don't understand a lot about it yet. Yeah. Uh, look, you, you could go back to the 80s and find things like HyperCard, where you were enabling you know, non-developers to create uh, an application of some sort. So it, it goes back a long way. But in terms of a movement uh, generating notice, uh, gaining investment, um, and having companies spend money on it, yeah, it's only been the past few years um, I can tell you that statistics are now saying that the market size, the amount of money being spent on software, no-code software used to create apps, is almost $14 billion. 
it's a lot of money being pumped into these apps. And in fact, more than 65% of apps are now created using no-code tools. So more than 50%, more than half of apps are being built with no-code software. Um, it is the predominant means of delivering applications these days. What's the distinction between no-code and low-code? Because I've heard both terms. Well, there's no formal, you can't point at it. You know, it's like, oh, you just went over the line. Uh, but the idea is that with low code, there are backdoors, there are means to enhance, to extend, to facilitate integration that might involve a little bit of coding. Even that coding could be simplified based on maybe either a scripting language uh, that is native to the tool or a public scripting language like a, like a Ruby. Uh, whereas no code is, it's just 100%, you're not going to see code anywhere. Uh, and so you are in a way limited to the sandbox provided by that no code platform. What it is you're able to deliver is limited by what you can piece together with the Lego blocks of that platform. No code gives you those little back doors to kind of branch yourself out. So what, what does it mean uh, for development? Does, does this disintermediate the, the need for application developers completely and just any old end user can pr produce a, an application w without in having to engage developers or is it more something that uh, accelerates the development process and just uh, gets uh, some cost and time out of the way? I think that that, br that question brings us to, you know, who's doing it, right? And why mm. are they doing it? Uh, the, as I mentioned, no code has sort of exploded recently. And it is due to a set of developments that have driven application development to what is now called the citizen developer. Uh, trends such as a shortage of developers. It's not that we're trying to get rid of them, it's that there's not enough. Uh, I saw one statistic that back in 2020, there were 1.2 million unfilled developer jobs in the United States, just the US, but 1.2 million developer jobs unfilled in the US and uh, colleges and universities were only cranking out about 400,000 developers. There's a shortage. So it's not that we don't want them, it's that we don't have them. Mm -hmm. What do you do about that? Uh, there was also COVID, which has greatly accelerated investment in these no-code platforms because everything moved online. And when everything moved online, everything needed to be digitized and companies realized we gotta move now and we don't have enough resources. So how the heck are we going to digitize these things? And then there's also sort of tangential but influential, the fact that even in our own home, we're not coders, but we are programmers, right? If I'm working with my Nest thermostat, that's programming. Uh, I just got a puppy and there have these apps that you can then program to see how many steps they've taken and how much water they drank. And that's programming. And so, uh, the, the, the digital native is used to controlling their environment digitally. There are tools out there that enable them to realize their ideas as an application. And somebody has to build it because there's not enough developers to go around. That's what really kicked the no-code market in the butt. What we're seeing subsequently is that the developer shortage is being filled by these citizen developers producing applications maybe for personal use, maybe for internal employee use, maybe for customer use, it depends. Uh, those developers are now being transitioned to work on 
larger projects, more intricate projects. They have more time, arguably, to focus on the big ticket stuff that still needs the hardcore development, offloading their responsibility from the simpler things that can now be handled by that citizen developer. Are, are, are there trade-offs that you have to kind of accept to, to use no code instead of just doing your own thing? I mean, there are obvious advantages. There's, there's speed and, you know, there's costs, uh, benefits. Um, there's a big productivity boost. But of course, there's trade-offs. Again, I, I like this notion of Legos. Uh, you have these pre-built blocks, and there's a finite number of block options that mm -hmm. you can combine in an infinite number of ways. Well, at the end of the day, you're still limited to those blocks, right? And so if I'm using a no-code platform and I need a block that doesn't exist, I'm stuck. Now, I suppose if it's a low-code platform, depending on what I need to achieve, okay, maybe I can put something together if I have the skill. Maybe I don't. But if I don't have the skill or if the uh, opportunity with the platform doesn't exist, well, I'm limited. And I think that might be the, the fundamental challenge is what can I do? What can I realize? Because recognize that a lot of these platforms are built to be generic, to address sort of breadth, not always depth. And so that can be a challenge. Uh, you are also, of course, relying on them to be responsible for performance and reliability. You are uh, kind of handing over that duty, that responsibility to the provider of the no-code platform. I hope they're doing a good job, right? Because it's out of my hands. I can't control mm -hmm. that. Uh, and so th those are kind of the big risks is can I achieve exactly what I want or am I making compromises? Am I achieving the level of performance my ability to deploy, my ability to collect data analytics, my ability to manage that deployment. Well, there's lots, there's 150, 200 platforms across the spectrum offering no-code, low-code options. Um, you might be making some compromises on the way. There certainly are. But as I shared with you, 65% of apps are now built with no-code platforms. Uh, so companies have decided it's worth the risk. What's the distinction between no code and uh, what you see is what you get user interfaces? Uh, no code, I think it's more of a connotation, not a denotation. I think you could argue that a lot of no code platforms are WYSIWYG. They are. Okay. Intuaface is a no code platform. It's, it's a drag and drop tool. It's a what you see is what you get tool, a WYSIWYG. The connotation of WYSIWYG, it could be for a developer. It could be. Uh, it could be for anybody of any skill set. So it's more of a generic uh, catch-all for applications, enabling to create other applications by dragging components, and you can see what they look like at design time, at development time. No code sort of connotes the non-developer, the citizen developer, that you don't have coding skills and you're not expected to have those skills. So I think that's the difference. With... Uh, you, you sent me a white paper that uh, kind of goes into this, and you're making the argument that while no code is out there, it's, it's exploding in growth and everything else, there's really no application that's, uh, I, I think you even called it a, a no-code blind spot in terms of in-venue applications. What do you mean by that? So let's define in-venue, uh, because uh, that is exactly our contention. In-venue uh, is an encapsulation of any digital deployment out of home. It uh, could be uh, digital signage, could be all those things I mentioned with Intuaface as well, right? The museum exhibition, the, the, the sales presentation, real estate office, etc. It is out of the home. It is not my phone, though. It is not um, 
my PC, I'm not browsing the web at home, I'm out of my home, I'm in a venue, and there is some digital content trying to communicate, to educate, to promote, to sell to me. That domain has been, I think, with the exception of Intuiface, untouched by the no-code movement. For sure, if you look at the landscape of companies delivering solutions to address the needs of the citizen developer, there is nothing out there addressing these in-venue deployments. It's all about web and mobile apps, web and mobile apps uh, and some websites. That's it. So if you want to create digital signage, uh, if you want to create the museum exhibition, the sales pitch, uh, there is no option out there. Now, the, and, and which brings us, David, I know you're going to want to ask this, which is, well, aren't all digital signage platforms no code? Um, which is a great question, Dave, by the way. Uh, which is... Uh, you're which psychic. Is, <laughs> which is, uh, it, that's a yes, but. It is absolutely true that you don't write code. But there are certain expectations of a no-code platform that the traditional digital signage CMS cannot fulfill. And so, and, and it's interesting if I take a step back, really by definition, it has always been the non-developer on the digital signage side, hasn't it, right? You buy a platform, there's a CMS, your job, uh, your, the, the user of the content management system is the, the content person, they're not coding mm -hmm. anything. They're working with uh, the CMS. They're assigning content to zones and they're day parting. They're setting, uh, by definition, from day one, digital signage was always a non-developer domain, whereas web and mobile apps and these sorts of things were always the developer domain. The no-code movement was, hey, this complicated stuff, we got to make it simpler. We need the citizen developer involved. So they brought no-code to the domain that started with developers which I think is one of the explanations for why it didn't really come over to the, the in-venue side yet, because it was always non-coder users. Mm -hmm. But there are certain expectations of the no-code platform that are not really in scope of the typical venue and uh, of a platform delivering in-venue content. Uh, a simple example, just uh, to give you one, would be the notion of context. Uh, to react to the user, react to the environment in real time, in that context, and do something as a result. That is inherently this notion of logic, if this, then that. That's coding, right? It's mm -hmm. got the whiff of coding. And, well, how do you do that? And so, and th there's a list of things we can discuss about what makes Invenia unique, but um, uh, it, it requires the accommodation of additional concerns that are beyond the scope of what a traditional CMS does and that no other no-code platform does across the, 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 the no-code spectrum. Yeah, it's, it, I guess what you're saying in, in certain respects is you can develop a playlist, do, do all the, the basic functionality of a digital sign. You can target content and everything else, but the moment you get into a, a request to do something different that's interactive uh, that as you say maybe response to triggers and so on that gets a lot more complicated and at that point you're you're putting in if you're an end user you're putting in a request to uh, your reseller or to the software company directly saying can you do this and they'll say yes we can but it's going to take this amount of time this amount of money and and 
and you know, I, we can't get this to you for six months because it's off of our roadmap or whatever. Is, is, is that yep. one of the arguments you'd make? I, I would say that for sure. You see a lot of companies, they'll have libraries. Here's our template library. Here's mm. our plugin library. Here's our integration library. Oh, you want something we don't have? Okay, we can build that for you. Here's the cost. Here's how long it's going to take. Uh, that's one example, certainly. Uh, I can tell you that from, you know, in Tuaface's perspective, we don't have a library. We haven't really pre-built anything. Our paradigm is to enable integration with any web service, to create any UI, to integrate with any content management system, to, to have that ubiquity, uh, and uh, which means that we don't have to build anything for our clients. The customer can do that. Um, but it also means that, uh, well, you better have a good idea and you better need to know what you want to do, right? Because uh, you're, you're starting with the tabula rasa. But yes, that is certainly one good example of uh, how do you fulfill these sort of unique needs you might have. Uh, think about, I'll, I'll give you a, another example, which is retail point of sale. How would you build that thing? To me, that qualifies as an in-venue application. That's in-venue, right? I can order through a website. But do I want to put a website on a kiosk? It's, it's a different domain. It's a different paradigm. It has different uh, design requirements, different expectations, different issues about uh, security, about being able to run potentially offline, about having to work with peripherals, uh, having hyper-local context dependence. There are all of these concerns that will impact that user experience in the venue that may not be relevant or uh, at all to, if, to a web experience. If I want to build that thing, how much flexibility am I going to have? Now, there are companies like Grubber, which have pretty much pre-built everything. All you do is you kind of push your menu into their back, their back office system, and you're, you're good to go. You just have to hope it does exactly what it is you want, because you're constrained within the confines of what they offer for design, what they offer for business process, mm -hmm. and what they offer in terms of context, awareness, and reaction. And if you need to make any kind of changes, you're dependent on them to make those changes. And that has a cost and a time... Uh, a penalty to it. What what kind of skill sets do you realistically need to to use no code, particularly in the context of Intuaface? Do you, I, I'm assuming the proposition is anybody can sit down, but you you, you still have to kind of plan out. You have to have some methodical thinking about what you want to do, or what what the decision tree is, and all that stuff, right? You, you do, and, and that gives me an opportunity to give you just a brief history of Intuaface because we were never a no-code company. That, that wasn't how we were oriented. The company was actually founded back in 2002. It was uh, founded by a couple of PhDs with expertise in uh, touch technology. And from day one, it was about bringing user experiences to a lot of it was, believe it or not, the defense industry, but also retail, touch-driven user experiences for something, to accomplish something. Mm -hmm. The company was always about the user experience. Uh, at the end of the day, as great as your touch technology might be, nobody cares if it's not usable, right? If it doesn't make it easy to achieve some goal. Mm -hmm. And so in Face, when it was born, uh, was all about the user experience. And in fact, most of its early hires were focused on that, on how to make something intuitive and easy to use. The company's intuitive interface. That's where mm -hmm. the name comes from. To make intuitive user experiences that were driven by interaction like touch. Uh, what happened was we were servicing all of these organizations. Again, a lot of defense, 
uh, Intuoface is headquartered just outside of Toulouse, as I mentioned. So you have the uh, big aerospace and defense industry located in Toulouse, like Airbus. Mm. So a lot of those clients, but also retail, uh, commerce. Um, Focus on user experience, and it was hard to scale the business because you had this deep technical dependency underneath because it's driven by touch and this expensive, we're going back, you know, 15 years, expensive hardware, challenging technology, and at the same time trying to come up with these really intuitive user interfaces. It was a challenge. And we decided internally, I say we, but I wasn't here yet, but to a face decided internally, we need to come up with something that can accelerate our ability to deliver good user experiences on top of this touch technology. And the company built something called Intui Kit. It was used internally by uh, user experience experts, by designers, by people good at aesthetics, people good at thinking about the customer. They were not developers. Ultimately, we decided this thing called Intui Kit is pretty awesome. Maybe that's our business. And so we're it's sort of a short story for how the, the software platform Toolface was born. We were always about the user experience. It is our expectation that our users are experts in the user, are experts in creating intuitive interfaces, not in having any necessary knowledge about development. So that is our expectation, and that's what we think is appropriate. You need to be creative. You need to understand the user. You need to understand the domain. You don't have to worry about the platform you're building it on. That should not be your problem. You should be all about solving the customer's problem. Hi, I'm Jeremy Gavin, CEO of ScreenFeed. Now, I'm not put off by the fact that you're not listening to this podcast to hear me. Just like audiences to any digital signage, you give your attention to content you find interesting or helpful. That's where my company, ScreenFeed, comes in. Our sole mission is to make your digital signage network more valuable by making content that is more valuable to your audience. If you'd like to drive more attention to your screens, visit ScreenFeed.com to explore the 75-plus content options we've created to do just that. And then give us a call. Now, back to the podcast. I realize you work with a bunch of industries, but a lot of your activity is in digital signage. Uh, if, if I am an end user and I'm using Acme digital signage software, uh, can I use in to a face with it? Does it plug into it? Or, or I mean, are, are, are there restrictions? Uh, do you have to go through door number one or door number two? You can't go, can't use both doors? Probably you can't. Uh, the, you, typically the content management system used by the DS platform is proprietary. It's a closed system. It doesn't have a published API. Uh, so we couldn't read from it. Intuaface, conversely, has its own runtime as well. We can run side by side, in fact, for on, on Windows. We have the ability to run side by side with other applications. We have had customers who were not ready to transition off their existing DS investment. So they were sort of cohabitating uh, interactive Intuaface based content in one part of the screen and traditional DS content in others who were kind of cohabitating that screen. Uh, but but normally, no, that, that wouldn't be how one would do it. Certainly, Intuaface is positioned around interactivity. We believe that, by definition, once you introduce interactivity and the need to be responsive in context and to accommodate not just touch, Dave, but you know, sensors and voice and computer vision, when you need to account for all of these things, you need to be very good at that, that if-then. 
right? At that notion of conditional responses mm -hmm. to events, uh, which are, are completely typically outside the realm of the traditional DS platform. Um, that's where we start. And then clients can decide, well, do I want these are two face to coexist with this DS platform or do we need to make some sort of transition? If I, if I'm an end user and I start with into a face and have a, a series of interactive screens that are doing some sort of functionality, whatever it may be. And then I decide I want to also have a uh, expanding network of quote unquote dumb screens that are just, you know, running traditional digital signage content in a, in some sort of a sequence. Can you do that too? Sure. The, the, the content doesn't know it's, it's in a dumb playlist, right? The content is fine. The certainly you can do that. Intuaface was born solving the interactive problem. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, Dave, because in the early days of selling our platform, digital signage was something else. You didn't touch signage. So our communication to the marketplace was not interactive signage. There wasn't such a thing. It was interactive content for kiosks. That was kind of the world we first walked into. If you were touching something, it was a table or a kiosk, you know. Mm -hmm. There were touchscreens, very expensive touchscreens you could mount on a wall. Remember Perceptive Pixel from a million years ago, like those CNN screens? Right, yeah. And that sort of thing. You spend, you know, $2,500, you can have a touchscreen. But by and large, it was kiosks and that sort of thing. What happened was that the, the you had this largely commoditized digital signage space, hundreds of companies offering traditional digital signage, and customers had iPhones in their pocket and they had iPads at home. And they start thinking about interactivity. They see the voting coverage on CNN and people tapping screens. So, well, can you do that? That's where we started getting questions about traditional digital signage. Can you fulfill that as well? And we're like, well, yeah, we can. Uh, and over the years, we developed additional capability to accommodate it. The paradigm is still different. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have a, a traditional notion of a playlist, for example, but you can create playlists with Intuaface. We're using our Lego blocks, not just to build interactive content, but non-interactive content. We can do both. So it's something you could do, but it's not where your focus. I, I would say it's we're interactive first. Right. But we can, the traditional broadcast signage, and I don't mean this in a judgy way, it's not typically that complicated. Right. And so if it is a playlist of stuff, images, videos, documents, it's very easily done. Uh, but people don't ever come to us, very rarely they've come to us with traditional first. Right. They're coming to us because they need to solve an interactive need. And oh, by the way, long term, you can transition, tradi uh, transition to traditional right. content delivery as well. I, I agree that, you know, the conventional side of digital science, the meat potatoes, you know, run this stuff at this time and, and these locations and all that is commoditized and pretty simple. And I always say that the complicated stuff is behind the scenes, the device management, uh, the API integrations and all that sort of stuff. Are you at a level now where you can provide the building blocks, the Lego blocks to do the interactive piece, but also enable the end user to monitor and remotely manage all that? Uh, we do offer that. And in mm -hmm. fact, we, we offer both of what you mentioned, because you also mentioned the API integration. Mm -hmm. We can accommodate that as well. Uh, on the device management side, certainly we have an awareness of the devices in the field, and you can set up notifications if things are going wrong, that sort of thing. You can see what's running on those devices. 
Um, on certain platforms, you can remotely update our runtime, that sort of thing. We're not uh, averse to working with uh, device and platform management uh, options as sort of a, uh, to collaborate with them in, in a deployment, but we do offer some of that. And with API integration, we've actually offered for six years. It's been a long time. And it's, it's sort of one of those things, Dave, where as I said, we weren't born no code. We were born worried about user experience. And we kind of realized, we looked in the mirror, and, oh, we're actually no code. Uh, we've been offering a, a bit of software called API Explorer. Uh, you can automatically create an integration, an integration with a web API without writing code. Uh, and it is a real-time integration, reading from, writing to that web API. It could be a back office system, ERP application, CRM application, could be a database wrapped in an API, could be a device on the Internet of Things. All of these options can be integrated with a running and two-a-face experience by a non-developer using API Explorer. So we've offered that for some time. I mean, originally, we, we now have our own CMS, but you don't have to use it. Our original value prop is use whatever you want. Mm. We have API Explorer. You can plug into whatever you want. We now introduced our own because depending on the scenario and the requirements of the project, it just makes better sense to use ours. Uh, but we still have customers that would rather use that other thing. Or Dave, they're just integrating with the ERP application. They're building a retail point of sale application with Intuaface. They have integrated with the ERP system. They need to work with the API and you, and you can do that. Who would you describe as your kind of core end users, core customers? I would say 50 to 60% of our customers are agencies and integrators. So we can discuss okay. who the actual user might be. But as, uh, I would say uh, more than half of our install base are agencies and integrators with their own clients. And there is a spectrum of reasons why they're using a two of face. Some of them, they don't have the development skill, but they want to offer interactivity. Uh, others have men and women on the bench with the skill, but they don't have the scale. So they can work on one thing at a time, right? And so uh, what we find is that a lot of the integrators in particular will be taking a two-of-face on so they can scale. They can take on a larger volume of maybe small and mid-sized projects that they can do with a two-of-face and then put the uh, men and women on the bench onto the bigger uh, high-value projects. Uh, we, we find that customers are saving 80% uh, of time and 60% of cost versus custom dev when they use a two-of-face. So it's very easy for them. And it's an easy pitch. I mean, conceptually, if you can build an interactive application does exactly what you want with a no-code platform, it's probably cheaper and faster than if I wrote code, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's an easy idea to kind of swallow. And it is what our customers experience. So that's what you'll find. I would say uh, uh, the majority, 60%, 55% agencies and integrators. The rest are the small and mid-size museums, schools, retailers, um, sales offices, marketing and sales teams, uh, they want to do it themselves. And do they want to do it themselves because of cost or control? Cost. Yeah. Often it's cost. They have ambition or they've been bitten, Dave, mm -hmm. where they have outsourced it. Um, one of the uh, sort of, you don't see this going in, but you meet, an, you meet an agency, here's what I want, you got it, give us two months and you got it. And we did, they delivered in two months and you say, okay, this is not exactly what I wanted, can you make a change? Sure, give me two weeks and I'll make the change. Two yeah. weeks later, you get a change. Can you tweak that? Four weeks, you make another change. It's not an and agile. And the meter's running the whole time. Oh, no, and they're paying for that time. Yeah. 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 It's not an agile process. And again, I'm not casting aspersion at the agency. Mm -hmm. They're our customer, right? But their sales pitches, we use Intuaface. 
So it can deliver what you want faster than the other guys. It does exactly what you want. And by the way, if you don't like the work we did, you can take it with you, right? If I pay an agency to write custom code and I'm dissatisfied, I'm starting from zero with another agency. Mm -hmm. So you have that kind of portability benefit as well. So yes, a lot of the small and midsize, it's, it's budget driven or based on their experience. They have limited budget. They outsourced it and they were dissatisfied. We do have the occasional large enterprise. They want to have maybe an interactive sales pitch. So the marketing and sales team is driving the creation of the collateral. You're not hiring a developer to make a, you know, I'm, I could use PowerPoint. Why am I hiring? I, it's hard to justify the expense, right? To pay developers to code a sales pitch. We're gonna, I can just use PowerPoint. Well, hold on a second. Here's this thing called Intuaface. I can build an interactive sales pitch for my sales force. I'm still using the tool. I'm the creative team. I'm the marketing and sales team. Uh, but I'm creating something that is far more novel and engaging than a bold mm -hmm. When the pandemic hit, I speculated, and I'm sure many, many people speculated that this was going to be a difficult time for people who are in the touch and interactive business. Uh, what happened instead is that touch actually went up in demand and self-service applications became very much uh, you know, a, a big development initiative. Have you seen that happening in the last couple of years? We, we have. I mean, ultimately, it turns out people are more afraid of other people than mm -hmm. of the touchscreen, right? And uh, our business has uh, rebounded quite well. What we were hoping, and it seems to be the case, is that demand didn't drop. It got stuck behind a wall, right? There was a dam. Mm. And the demand was building behind the dam. And you couldn't open the dam because nobody was out of the house. And the waters were rising. People are finally out of the house. <laughs> right? And you opened up the floodgates. So we're seeing a really nice rebound that is complemented, not just by the building interest anyway, but the kind of renewed interest in facilitating uh, non-human interaction, uh, which sounds horrible culturally, but that's mm -hmm. what it is, uh, in their place of business or what have you. And again, it doesn't, it's not just touch. Uh, yes, I think probably most people would rather take a little Purell. They're, they're fine with that. But yeah. still, some people are not, and maybe they can use their mobile phone, or, you know, scan a QR code. But it's also a labor issue, right? There's just it's harder to hire people, and if you can use self-service, then you don't have to worry so much about uh, staffing. There's that whole other thing too, absolutely, which is the cost of staffing, and training, and enabling, and equipping, and there's that as well. Uh, so for sure, there is an I, certainly a perceived increase in interest in interactivity of any kind. And uh, Intuaface has always been focused on any kind of interactivity, not just touch. And certainly uh, this ability to use my mobile phone to interact with content is a more pop is, is an increasingly interesting example. Using gesture to interact, using voice to interact. So I'm not touching, but I'm still uh, not all still working with technology directly rather than mediated through somebody else. So all of that is going on. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, last question. You guys uh, have. And certainly in the last few years, had a presence at ISC and uh, at other trade shows. Uh, what are you doing in the next uh, few weeks and months? Will you, is Interface going to be something that people can walk up and get demos on? We will be at ISC. So that'll be our first trade show in however many years. In forever, yeah. Yeah, we'll be there. So you and I are speaking on April 26th. And that's why ISC is in just a couple of weeks. We will be there with a booth, and we certainly hope we can, we'll see others there. 
we used to actually have our user conference in parallel with ISC mm -hmm. in person. And the pandemic put the kibosh on that. We've done virtual user conferences every year since then. And we kind of like that because you don't have to travel. Mm -hmm. And so our user conference will forevermore be virtual. We actually have our user conference in three weeks uh, that uh, people are welcome to join. It's free. It'll be online. But uh, we do plan to be at ISE. We do plan to be at DSE in the U.S. And mm -hmm. I think it's now November. Uh, and we're participating in, uh, you know, your, your colleagues at Invitus are running DSSE in parallel at ISC. We'll be participating in that as well. Uh, so we're starting, yes, we're, we're treating this as sort of back to normal. It's interesting, Dave, uh, working on my travel plans, flying into Spain. It's, you don't just show up now. There's some mm -hmm. hoops you need to jump through because of COVID. Um, but it looks like as of today, they're not even requiring masks on site. That doesn't seem to be a requirement. Just a, sort of the honor system that you are vaccinated or recovered. And uh, we'll see how that goes. But we're excited to be there. We'll have a big booth and about, I don't know, eight of us. We'll have a lot of people there. Okay. And uh, where can people find Intuiface online? Intuiface.com. Dave, thank you for asking. Intuiface.com. Uh, they can also uh, just contact us. Um, we are listening to Jeff Besson. You can just email me, besson at Intuiface.com. Uh, but the product can be tried for free, Dave. Uh, no credit card required. People can poke at it and see if uh, what we're saying is true. All right. Thank you. Dave, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe you learned a thing or two. If you're new to 69, it's a podcast that's been around since 2016. You can click around the archive and find hundreds of conversations with smart industry people. If you're new to digital signage, you need to be reading 69 at 16-9.net. You'll find more than 8,000 posts by me and expert guest writers about this industry. 16.9 is not a press release republishing mill, like a lot of the stuff out there. If something makes it on 16.9, that means it matters in some way to the business. Everything about 16.9 is free. Great sponsors make my work possible. And the key one here is ScreenFeed, the digital signage content store. Check out all the curated and automated content available at ScreenFeed.com. 16.9, the blog and the podcast are now owned by Spectrio, which does customer engagement solutions, most of that digital signage for all kinds of businesses. You'll find them in the Tampa area and online at Spectrio. That's Spectrio.com. You'll find me working out of a sunny back room in my house located outside Halifax, Nova Scotia on the east coast of Canada. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Haynes.